Well, good morning, VRBC. It's great to be here with you today. This morning, we are continuing in our sermon series where we're walking through the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah wrote during a time when the Israelites, the people of God, were facing difficulty and uncertainty and pain. And they didn't know when it was going to end. But Zechariah's messages from God to the Israelites are full of hope. Now, two weeks ago, Caleb taught us how to have hope in God's word. Last week, John talked about how we could have hope in God's intervention. And today, we're going to see how we can have hope in God's mercy. Some of you may remember a news story from 2010 about a collapse at the San Jose Copper Gold Mine in northern Chile. 700,000 tons of metric rock collapsed. They caved in and blocked the central passages to the tunnels of the cave. 33 men were trapped, 2,300 feet, that's about half a mile underground. So the foreman, Luis Urzua, he recognized the seriousness of the accident and he took charge. He had a reputation for protecting and caring for his team. And he knew that this was going to be a long ordeal. He wanted to prepare his men to overcome the darkness, despair, and the prospect of starvation. And so he organized the men for long-term survival rationing two days of food to last over two months. And he helped them cope mentally with what they were experiencing. And after 70 long days of being trapped underground, he was the last man to be rescued. But he remained cool under the pressure and merely remarked, it's been a bit of a long shift. (laughs) Now in our passage today, the Israelites are having to adapt to a new situation as well. They've returned from exile, back to Jerusalem, and they've begun the long, slow work of rebuilding the temple. And like BRBC, as we search for a new pastor, the Israelites were in a state of transition. They didn't know what the future held for them. And nothing seemed to be going the way they'd expected it to be, and they didn't see any way to change it. The problem was, they had gotten themselves into this mess, and they couldn't get themselves out of it. It was their own rebellion and idolatry that had brought on the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and being forced into exile. And now God in his mercy had brought them back, but they didn't know what hope the future held for them. Was God still angry with them? In chapter one, they'd asked the question, how long will God withhold mercy? Now, like the Israelites, have you ever felt stuck in a crisis of your own making? Have you ever felt like you were not worthy Like the men in the mind, have you ever felt like there was nothing you could do to change your situation? Or have you ever wondered if the sins of your past were like those 700,000 metric tons of rock blocking your path to doing something with meaning and purpose for God? So the Israelites, they were discouraged. They didn't have a whole lot of hope in their future. But like the foreman in the Chilean mine, God sent Zechariah to motivate them and to encourage them, to remind them of God's mercy to fill them with courage and hope, to prepare them to live full and meaningful lives as they follow God. And so today, as we dive into Zechariah chapter three, we want to find hope in God's mercy too, for each of us individually and together as a church. We want to know that in this season of uncertainty and change in our church, God will be present with us and transform us and use us to further God's kingdom. So you can turn to Zechariah 3 in your Bibles, 
or follow along on your notes page or on the screen. Listen as I read Zechariah 3, 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing on his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. May God bless the reading of this word. Now, when I graduated from seminary back in 2004, I was already in conversations with the first church I would serve in Tennessee. But their search process lasted a year and a half. And so even after I graduated, it would be 10 more long months until I moved and began my new job. And in the meantime, I was a newlywed in Grand Prairie with no community and a whole lot of time on my hands. And as a teacher and an unemployed pastor, we were too poor to pay for cable TV. So my entertainment options were basically PBS Kids or old-timey black and white TV shows. Um, I became a big fan of Perry Mason. Any other Perry Mason fans in the room? (laughs) Okay, there's a few of you. The main character of Perry Mason is a criminal defense lawyer who specializes in unusual, difficult, or hopeless cases. And all of the plot lines involve a client being charged with murder, and usually a preliminary hearing or a jury trial. And with a show of brilliance, Perry Mason always establishes his client's innocence usually with a surprising twist at the end as he reveals the true murderer. Now this opening scene in Zechariah chapter three reminds me of a Perry Mason plot. Verse one is a courtroom scene and there's a trial going on. Let's meet each of the characters in the order that they appear in our text. First, we have Joshua, the high priest. He's the prisoner on the dock. If he were going to court today, I'm sure his lawyer would make him wear a nice button up shirt and a tie. But Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes. This was a Jewish tradition for those who felt sorry for their sins. And the Israelites have been dressing in this way ever since the destruction of Jerusalem. Next, we have the angel of the Lord, who's the judge presiding over the trial. So he's acting as God's appointee and representative. And then last, we have Satan, the prosecuting attorney, who stands on Joshua's right side, ready to accuse him. Now, we may be somewhat familiar with the courtroom scene, but it's a bit unusual to have an angel of the Lord and Satan here in the mix. So let's take a time out and briefly explain those. The angel of the Lord is a mysterious figure who appears at different times throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes the angel is clearly distinct from God, but at other times the angel speaks and acts so much like God that we might assume that it is God manifesting in human form, okay? 
And Satan is a Hebrew word that literally means the adversary. Now, if you're picturing a red devil with horns, put that image out of your mind. That's not this. Sometimes the word is used in the Old Testament to speak explicitly of human adversaries. And it's not until the New Testament period that we begin to see Satan as God's opponent. So in the Old Testament, Satan plays the role of a heavenly accuser or prosecutor, just like we see here in Zechariah 3. So why is the adversary bringing trial against Joshua, the high priest? Well, Joshua, the high priest, was supposed to be the spiritual leader of the community, representing God to the people. He was the one who would wear the priestly garments and officiate in the rebuilt temple. But with the return from exile, it seems that not much has changed. The land still seems defiled. The people were still observing these rituals of God's punishment and penitence. And Zechariah saw that there's still much wrong with the community. And it feels a bit like holding a mirror up to our own situation today. We know that God is redeeming this sinful world, but we still see so much brokenness and pain. And it's not just the world around us. We see it in ourselves too. On our best days, we long to please God and to do God's will. But on our worst days, we have to acknowledge that we are unfit and unqualified for the task. But just like a Perry Mason show, we're in for a shocking reversal. Because here's the beautiful thing that we learn from this passage. God's mercy sees us as we are and transforms us for a holy purpose. I find this so compelling. God sees us exactly as we are. Joshua didn't try to cover up the state that he or his people were in. We don't have to, be, to, we don't have to pretend that we're someone that we're not to try to convince God to love us. God wants our authentic selves. God sees us. God knows us. And exactly in that state, God loves us. There's nothing we can do or have done to win God's favor or to earn God's approval. But God doesn't leave us in that helpless and hopeless state. God transforms us, changes us, washes away the stain of sin, and we become God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And God sees fit to use us for meaningful service in God's kingdom. So how does God's mercy do all of these things? Well, first, if you're taking notes, we are pardoned. God won't give up on us. Verse two gives us an overview of all of the courtroom proceedings. Or sorry, it does not give us an overview of all the courtroom proceedings. It goes straight for the verdict. Not guilty. Gasps and excited whispers are echoing from around the courtroom. Look at verse two. God rebukes the prosecuting attorney, the adversary who has brought the case before trial. And just like that, Joshua is pardoned. God declares that Joshua is a saved man and God simply will not allow any charges brought against him to stand. Now, if you're sitting here today thinking that if God knew everything that went on in your heart and mind or home, God would give up on you, you're wrong. God does know. And here's what else God knows. If being part of God's community and God's mission meant that we all had to come in with clean records and shiny resumes, there would be nobody left. Romans 3 says that we are all under the power of sin. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And so as we look at the arc of the biblical story from Genesis all the way to Revelation, this is a consistent pattern that we see repeated throughout. God takes people who seem to be the least likely 
candidates, the least qualified to perform the tasks that God needs done. Look at Moses. He had a speech impediment that caused him uh, to have major problems in public speaking. And in fact, when God called him to be God's messenger to Pharaoh, to say, let my people go from slavery in Egypt, Moses thought God was being ridiculous and insisted on bringing his brother Aaron along to help. But in the end, God used Moses to speak powerfully to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. And then there's Rahab. Who would have thought that God would choose a prostitute? But her decisive actions protected the two Israelite spies that led to the famous victory at Jericho. Think about David. David was the youngest son. He was a sheep breeder, not even considered as an option when the prophet Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel from among Jesse's family. But David was the unlikely one that was selected to lead God's people. Jesus was born to an immigrant family on the run in the middle of political chaos and danger, in humble surroundings and without fanfare. There's a little boy whose lunch of five loaves and fishes uh, fed a crowd of 5,000 people. And then Zacchaeus, who was hated by his neighbors as a tax collector, became the host of a Jesus party and an example to everybody of how God can totally transform a life. So this tells us something about the kind of people God chooses to make an impact and to do something useful for God's kingdom. God isn't combing through resumes, looking for a leader with a long list of accomplishments, magnetic personality, impressive skills and competencies. The best candidate for God's purposes is just someone who demonstrates humility, who realizes their own need for mercy and for God's guidance. God sees us as we are and has mercy on us. God isn't dissuaded by our situation. And even though we've done nothing to deserve it, God declares us not guilty. Now, this first act of mercy is focused on our past. We were condemned by our sinful nature and God has come in with the shocking reversal of status. Instead of having to stand trial for our sins, a trial that we would surely lose, God intervenes and vindicates our past. Now you may be wondering about this unusual description at the end of uh, verse two, that Joshua is a burning stick snatched from a fire. Some people speculate that his clothing was singed from standing too close to false prophets. Others suggest that he had to atone for his sins with humble clothing and burnt offerings. Still others see the fire metaphorically, referring to Joshua's escape from Nebuchadnezzar slaughtering the priests of Jerusalem. Now, whatever conclusion we might draw, this description of Joshua as a burning stick snatched from the fire tells us that Joshua was rescued at the last moment from danger. But the fact that he's still in the singed clothing tells us that while he may be pardoned, he's still impure. But the good news is that God doesn't stop there. God could certainly declare us not guilty, but then leave us to figure out our way from there. God could remove all of the accusation from our past um, and uh, past sins and then leave us in the same state for our present and future. I love the movie Ocean's Eleven. Maybe some of you have seen it. Danny Ocean gets out of prison and then is suddenly supposed to figure out how to make a fresh start when nothing has really changed at all. He goes right back to his same group of friends and right back into his old way of life and immediately starts planning his next heist. Nothing changes. But as we'll see in the next verse, in God's courtroom, God isn't done after this shocking declaration of not guilty. After we've been pardoned, then we are cleansed. God forgives us. 
In Joshua's role as the high priest, his clothing was very important. This wasn't just a matter of dressing nicely to show respect for God. His garments were both functionally practical and religiously symbolic. The high priest was the primary go-between for God and the people of Israel. He alone had this awesome privilege of once a year going into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement in the temple with the blood of a sacrificed animal to ask forgiveness for the sins of the people. And there was a very specific and detailed uniform that the high priest wore. Exodus 39 gives us a good description if you want to read up on it later. And the high priest bore the names of the people, the sons of Israel, engraved on the breastpiece and shoulder pads of his robes. He symbolically carried them into the presence of God as their mediator and representative. He was to wear a pure gold plate with the inscription on a seal that said, Holy to the Lord. As one commentary said, the acceptability of the people of God depended critically on the acceptability of the high priest. So if his priestly uniform is to be a symbol of his purity and spiritual cleanliness, then standing here in the courtroom before the judge in filthy or singed clothing shows that Joshua may have been pardoned, but he is still unclean. He's unfit for priestly service because he bears the stain of sin, both internally as well as externally. And the people that he's supposed to carry before the Lord, both spiritually and physically inscribed on his clothing, are unclean too. And that's why verse four is such good news. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. What a relief for Joshua. Do you know the feeling when you just finished working in the yard, it's the middle of July, and suddenly somebody stops by to see you? All of a sudden you are very conscious of the way that you look and smell, right? You would give anything to be able to be suddenly clean and acceptable. Well, it reminds me of a story about Bobby Moore. He's the captain of the English soccer team that won the World Cup in 1966. You can ask Arthur about the game later here. He's got some very passionate thoughts about this game. As he went to receive the trophy from Queen Elizabeth and shake her hand, he noticed on his way there that she was wearing beautifully white gloves. And suddenly he became very aware of how dirty his hands were from the match. And at the last moment, as he walked along the balcony, he could be seen wiping his hands on his shorts and along the velvet balustrade on the uh, royal box, just desperate to get himself clean. Well, maybe we're the same way. Maybe most of the time we think we're all right. We go about our day thinking we're doing great, celebrating our victories. We don't think about the way that our actions and thoughts might be staining the image of God in us. And it's not until something opens our eyes that we suddenly see ourselves for who we are, unclean and incapable of becoming clean ourselves. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. As we talked about a few weeks ago, it's not so much particular sins that are the problem. It's our pattern of sinfulness, this underlying condition of living to please ourselves rather than God. It's the same condition that caused the prophet Isaiah to cry out, woe is me, I am ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Peter had a similar experience when he met Jesus for the first time. You may remember that Jesus miraculously filled their nets with fish to the point of breaking. And Luke 5 says, when Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, 
Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Our sinful nature is a problem that we can't solve on our own. You may have noticed the angel didn't tell Joshua to go out and buy yourself some new clothes. This change is a gift from God. It requires God's cleansing power to take away our slavery to sin and to enable us to fight the daily battles against the sin that tries to so easily entangle us. And when God forgives us and cleanses us, it's not just our past that's changed, it's our present status too. We're taught to put off our old filthy clothing, our corrupted self and our patterns of sin, and to put on new fine garments, a completely new self. God begins this lifelong process to transform us into holiness. Look together with me at Ephesians 4. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It sounds a bit like a change of clothing, doesn't it? The good news of Zechariah 3 for the high priest Joshua and for us is that God cleanses us. God removes our filthy rags, our old self corrupted by sin, by our deceitful desires, and clothes us in new garments. The new self created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. We are cleansed. So if we are soccer captain Bobby Moore, we're ready to shake the queen's white-gloved hand. Or if we're Isaiah or Peter or Amy, or Harold, or Debbie, or uh, Trey, any one of our uh, people in this room, we can now stand in the presence of a holy God without guilt or shame. God is preparing us to be the kind of people who bear God's image to the world, who look like Jesus people, not just because we're shinied up on the outside, but because we have been made clean on the inside. We can have hope in God's mercy because God doesn't give up on us. God forgives us. This is incredible news because it doesn't stop there. God doesn't vindicate our past and cleanse our present state just so we can spend our days twiddling holy thumbs and admiring how clean and shiny we all are. No, the good news is that we can have hope in God because God has something such, so much more meaningful in store for us. As we'll see in Joshua's story, we are also affirmed. God has a purpose for us all. When Joshua received the clean priestly robes and turban, this gives us a clue for the verses to come. God has a plan and a purpose for Joshua. In verse uh, six, God gives Joshua a charge. Now already with that bit of foreshadowing, I start to feel a little bit relieved on Joshua's behalf. He was a priest who had been declared unfit for priestly duties. Isn't it a terrible thing to feel useless when you know that there are important things to be done, but you are unfit and unqualified to do them? But now we sense that a change is coming for Joshua. What a wonderful feeling when you have finally been declared useful and are able to give a meaningful way to contribute. You begin to feel a sense of purpose once again. You can see that your life truly does matter. It's like a window opens up in the darkness of your soul and you begin to feel the light of hope pouring in. I heard a true story about a second grade girl named Sarah who was new to town, full of energy, maybe a little bit naughty. Her Sunday school teacher was explaining to the class that everyone can be useful in serving God. And little Sarah raised her hand and said, teacher, what can I do? I don't know how to do very many useful things. 
Well, the teacher had to improvise quickly, and she noticed a vase on the windowsill and said, Sarah, you can bring a flower and put it in that vase. That would be a useful thing. And Sarah frowned, but that's not important. Well, it is if you're helping someone. And so week after week, Sarah would bring a dandelion and put it in that vase. Now, one Sunday, the pastor's sermon was about helping others, and so he moved that vase right up there to the pulpit as a sermon illustration. Now, that same week, Sarah was diagnosed with leukemia, and the pediatrician had to give the devastating news to her parents that nothing could be done to save her life. Eventually, Sarah became confined to bed. As people began to visit her in her home, they could see that after a time, she'd lost a lot of weight and the end was near. One Sunday morning, towards the end of the sermon, the pastor suddenly stopped speaking and stared at the back of the church with amazement. It was Sarah. Her parents had brought her for one last visit. Instead of taking a seat at the back, she slowly made her way to the pulpit. She put her flower in the vase for the last time and laid a note beside it and then went to sit with her parents. Four days later, Sarah died. And at her funeral, the pastor shared what she had written on the note. In pink crayon, it said, Dear God, this face has been the biggest honor of my life. Sarah. Now, Sarah's note and her vase help us understand something, besides just that your associate pastor cries easily. <laughs> so it helps us understand something important. Life is an opportunity to serve God by serving people. And church, I see you doing this so well, using your gifts to bless others. The way that you love and care for people who are struggling, the way you care for those who have lost a family member, the way you welcome those who are new to our community. It may sometimes seem insignificant, but as Sarah put it, serving God by serving others is the biggest honor of all. In our passage today, Joshua is given the great honor of being charged with serving God's people. Look with me at verse seven. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. What a blessing. This charge to Joshua begins with personal responsibility to do what God's calling him to do. It will require obedience and following in God's ways. This is not a task for the faint of heart or to be done half-heartedly. The honor of serving God requires that we follow God's ways. But then look what follows that. Based upon this charge of serving faithfully, Joshua is given authority and influence. He has a God-given purpose as God's representative to the people. He's a spiritual leader in the community with an opportunity to make a tremendous spiritual impact. Now friends, this honor, this sense of purpose is not just for Joshua as the high priest. Look at what 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10 say. I really like how the message puts it. But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him to tell others of the night and day difference he has made for you, from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. Have you found your purpose? Have you discovered what God is calling you to do, to work, to speak out for God? Because friends, this is not just for those who bear the title of priest or pastor. This verse was written to the people in the pews, to the community of faith, God has affirmed your usefulness. You are wanted and needed in the kingdom of God. 
So if you haven't discovered your purpose yet, I encourage you to sit with this verse this week. Ask God what your purpose in God's kingdom might be. Ask God how you can be useful in serving God by serving people. And spend some time listening for God's response. Maybe you want to ask someone that you trust who loves you what they see in you and how your gifts and experiences might be useful. And then try a few things. Maybe it's in your own home or neighborhood, like Sarah, where you can show God's love by making things better for those around you. Maybe it's in the church. Maybe you'd like to try out serving in our children's ministry or on the welcome team or within our ESL ministry. Or maybe it's by increasing your witness to the people that you encounter. As 1 Peter 2 said, telling others of the night and day difference that God has made for you. Friends, God didn't vindicate you and cleanse you just to put you on a shelf in a display case. We have the great honor of being useful in God's kingdom. We have the opportunity to make a real difference in the lives of those around us. And if you think that your past has marred the purpose to which God's called you, think again. When you surrender your life to God, those old filthy garments are gone. The mercy of God clothes you in holiness and righteousness and affirms your heavenly purpose. Look at Joshua's example. He was once impure and now he's been given access to God. He was once accused and ready to be found guilty, but now he's given a spiritual authority and leadership. And all of this is because God has changed him. And Joshua's purification as high priest will eventually lead to the, removing the guilt of the people from the land. The temple will be rebuilt and restored. The presence of God will reside in it. These closing verses of Zechariah 3 are a hint of what's yet to come. In fact, God lets Joshua and his priestly colleagues know that it's not just about what God is going to do through them. They are symbolic of things to come. All of this is pointing to something that's yet to happen. These high priests were pointing to something greater. God is going to send the branch. Now, in the near term, this probably referred to a descendant of David, uh, once again ruling Israel. In Zechariah's time, it was probably Zerubbabel who would serve as the governor. But the branch also draws on prophecies from Isaiah and Jeremiah that predict the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, the great high priest who's the only access that we need now to God. Verse 9 describes a stone or a rosette that's placed on the turban of a priest's garment, described in Exodus 28. These seven eyes are facets on the stone that bear the inscription, Holy to the Lord. Now the last part of this verse I think sums up the entire gospel in a single sentence. Even as Joshua is deemed holy to the Lord and fit to serve in the temple, there is one to come who is truly holy and righteous, not because he was declared not guilty and cleansed of sin, but because he was completely without sin. But of this great high priest, Jesus, the Lord Almighty promises, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Friends, because Jesus, who was without sin, came and died in our place on the cross and defeated death when God raised him to life, we can experience hope in the great mercy of God. We no longer need the symbol, we have the reality. We no longer need a high priest to offer sacrifices on our behalf. We no longer need to wonder if God will extend mercy and forgive. We no longer need to wonder if we have a place and a role in God's kingdom. Everything necessary to be able to experience forgiveness and to serve God has already been done for us. Radical transformation and meaningful purpose are possible because of what Jesus has done for us in a single day on the cross. And just like the promises that come in verse 10, there are blessings that are only too good to be, sorry, blessings that are too good to keep to ourselves. 
that can be fully enjoyed only by being shared. So let's live into the hope of God's mercy as we share God's new life and blessings with one another. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for these promises in your word. Lord, we know that if it depended on our righteousness and our own holiness from within ourselves, Lord, that none of us would stand a chance as we stand before you. But God, we are so grateful that you declare us, not of our own merit, but because of your goodness, that you declare us not guilty. And Lord, that you don't stop there, but you go forward to truly cleanse us, to remove our guilt, to forgive us. And Lord, that you do these things so that you can also give us a holy purpose, a way to be meaningful in your kingdom and to serve you faithfully, to share with others the night and day difference you have made in our lives. God, would that be true of us today? In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.